is you think about social media and it's it's quote free, right? But what are we what are we actually paying with? We're paying with our time. We're paying with our attention. And I think it's increasingly uh, obvious that we're paying with our mental health. A lot of this is tied up with our obsession with work as like our only way of expressing value. The clearest thing is that we somehow are one of literally two countries in the world that don't have paid family leave for uh, new moms, uh, you know, because that somehow would be like bad for business. Uh, I think acknowledging human vulnerability and struggles is also bad for business. Uh, Like you're depressed, you know, keep it to yourself. Before this pandemic, we already had record highs in terms of our stress levels, anxiety, depression, prescription drug use, and even suicides and drug overdoses. It had gotten so bad that our life expectancy declined for three years in a row, which uh, was unheard of, essentially, in a developed country. Uh, And so that's pre-crisis. And the worst part is, obviously, this crisis has doubled or tripled the incidence of depression, anxiety, mental health issues around the country. People with kids, uh, of which I am one, um, who report having severe distress went up from 3% to 37%. And I understand why. I mean, uh, I'm trapped with a four-year-old and a seven-year-old, one of whom is on the autism spectrum. And uh, one or the other of them is having some kind of meltdown uh, several times a day. And so, you know, you're you uh, are just around like a screaming child a lot, which elevates your uh, stress level. And if you look at the crisis text line, which is a, a line that you contact if you're considering hurting yourself, their traffic has gone up 100 percent. So you're looking at two to three times or worse in terms of exacerbating a pre-existing mental health crisis in this country. I'm really passionate about this uh on a personal level, my brother is a psychology professor, uh, and there's so much more that we must do now more than ever. One of the things that stood out to me in your book before I joined your campaign was talking about, and I, you probably remember this, but I don't know how specific you remember it, talking about how people inside, like at the top of the food chain, like people at, like in the 1%, are actually miserable as well as the people at the in the bottom part of the country. Do you remember writing about that? Yeah, I remember looking at the numbers, uh, because I'm a numbers guy, about studies of how kids were doing on college campuses. And all the way up to the most selective schools, kids were reporting, again, record high levels of anxiety and depression and existential stress uh, and worse. And you had cues out the door for counseling and mental health resources at these schools to the point where the schools were doubling, tripling, like the number of counselors and uh, psychologists and associate deans that they had on staff to see all the kids. And they still weren't able to to actually meet with them where you had like multi-month waiting lists at these schools. Uh, And these are the kids who had quote unquote, done it. You know, they'd like graduated from uh, high school at the top of their class. They got into that school that everyone wanted to get into. And then they're freaking miserable uh, when they get there. And then it's not like, oh, but after they get out of college, it'll like, you know, uh, it'll become sunshine and roses because, (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, the the post collegiate landscape is changing, too. Um, And many, many people have life changing levels of debt. Um, which is a stressor. I know that too, because I had school loans of over $100,000 in my right. 20s. So these are the people that had uh, had supposedly won in our meritocratic rat race, and they also were depressed as heck. Uh, and you worked on Wall Street, and it's not like people there were um, happy. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. Well, you, you get these kids that go to elite school, or they do well in high school, and they go to elite college or university and then they get an elite job so they're going to harvard and then they go to mckinsey and then that environment they go into is cutthroat and intense and stress inducing just the work itself let alone the people um 
So I think what was so shocking to me is like, okay, here's the winners. They're miserable. And then you know people who are financially struggling. Um, that causes its own level of misery. Plus some of the jobs are harder. They're physically harder and more taxing. You've talked a lot about truck drivers and what that does to someone's body. Um, so if, if the, the winners are miserable and the losers are miserable, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, and a lot of this is tied up with our obsession with work as like our only way of expressing value uh, or our only way of measuring ourselves or other people. Uh, when I, I talked to Barack Obama about a number of things uh, like a few weeks ago, and one thing he said that we should look at, which I agree with wholeheartedly, which is related to mental health, is having shorter work weeks. Um, right now, our work weeks just cre- get keep on creeping uh, longer and longer. And if you were to shorten them, um, you would create some jobs in the margins because you might have to hire some uh, extra people in, in certain roles and organizations and functions. Um, but you'd also give people a chance to breathe, have their head up, think about the things that are important to them that are not work, work, work. Um, right. Derek Thompson, uh, a journalist in The Atlantic, uh, calls it workism. <laughs> it's like the religion <laughs> of America. Um, yeah. and, and it's one reason why we're so stressed out and anxious, but it's also one reason why we're having trouble um, humanizing the economy and having measures like universal basic income because people are so obsessed with the facts like, oh, but then you might not work. <laughs> and <then laughs> yeah. Work as people like narrowly defined. Um, and you know, it ignores all these forms of work that people actually want to do, which might make us less sad, uh, anxious and mm-hmm. depressed, particularly now. Um, you know, I mean, the numbers are staggering around the magnitude of the mental health crisis uh, during this pandemic. Uh, And we have to have massive investments to try and improve the situation because this is a crisis on top of a pre-existing crisis. There's one one of the things I've kind of taken away in working from home a lot is that I probably don't do five full days of work, right? Like my work comes in fits and starts. Like I'll just work. You're fired, No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like, um, like I'll work like 15 hours straight and then, you know, I get it less done the next day or whatever it is. Right. Um, like I do think if you actually budget your time in this environment, you would probably find you could get more done on a four hour work week or sorry, a four day work week, four hour work week, different book. Oh, studies have shown in terms of time use that a four day work week is just about as productive as a five day work week. And that extra day, isn't really adding anything like, and, and we kind of know uh, how we uh, we organize our own time it's like somehow the time you allocate uh shrinks or expands to fit the schedule it's like could i get this thing done in three days sure you give me five days i'll do it then you do it four days it's like pretty much whatever time frame you give me i'll get it done there's studies on that where you give a human being the same number of tasks in more time or less time and they'll still do it they'll do it in, in less time um most of the time um, i want to go on the record and say too that uh, in my 20s i tried to start a business and we didn't have any money so we were like work from home and i sucked at it and it was miserable and i said to myself like i'm going to try to not do this again um that so for people who think working from home is awful because of like a lack of division or separation between mm-hmm. uh, work and the rest of your life and like schedule creep and the rest of it. Like I feel your pain because yeah. I, I hated it in my twenties. Uh, and yeah, like, uh, you know, obviously now, now it's like a slightly different situation. Um, but <laughs> I, I'm not sure whether working from home is good or bad for your mental health. Um, because I, I think, um, it could cut both ways. What I'm finding is challenging is that I used to have like my computer time where I do my work and then I have meetings or interactions or go get a cup of coffee or go get lunch with somebody and that's non-screen time. And now with Zoom and these Zoom calls and video calls, like my people interaction time is screen time and then my work time is also screen time. And then it just blends together. Your brain kind of mushes. Um, and, And that's probably what you do too. Like you're doing all these like video conference press hits and that's gotta be infuriating in some ways yeah it's uh it's not great for your mental health it's one reason why i do try and get outside and get some fresh air every day and so some of the things that i've been doing immediately 
just to uh, keep my head on straight. And this is a time for self-care. If you're listening to this, just know like you just have to try and look out for yourself because um, if you don't look out for yourself, you'll probably be depressed. And uh, right mm-hmm. now, if you uh, are depressed, you're perfectly normal. And if you're not depressed, you're probably a little weird uh, because most people <laughs> I think are struggling. Yeah. So some of the things I do that have helped me uh, exercise, get some outdoor time every day, uh, reach out to someone for something non-work related randomly every day, uh, try and read something. Like I think I am a fan of just uh, analog, like hardcover or softcover books. Right. Um, and reading a book has been uh, tied to positive mental states and mental health. It's relaxing. Uh, what are you reading right now? Uh, I'm reading uh, books from people that are going to be on the podcast. So right now I'm reading um, Humankind by Rucker Bregman. So if you're a Rucker Bregman fan, he's going to be on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I read an earlier version before because I gave a blurb for the book, but it's changed a little bit um, and I wanted to read it again. Uh, there are very, very big structural changes we should be making in terms of our approach to mental health. It would start with destigmatizing it. So one thing I said that people always got a laugh out of was to say we should have a psychologist in the White House. Uh, and people thought that was just like me knocking um, Trump. But it's just good practice. I mean, you have people in a very stressful environment um, and it would destigmatize mental health issues because it's like, oh, if, if folks in the, the at the in the White House say like there's a psychologist on staff and they, they see the person um, that's something maybe we should, we should all be doing. I think the stigma around it, Andrew, to me bothers me so much. Um, mainly because I'm not sure where it's coming from. Cause this kind of thing is actually, it's, I mean, what's the phrase in the Bible? It's like one man is iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Like this is actually something that if you're like the far right is going to stigmatize it, or whoever it is like, that's something that uh, talking to each other has kind of been par for the course as human beings for a while. I don't know where the stigma came from, Andrew. Um, we just somehow got afraid well, to talk I think about the, this. I think the stigma is associated with a lot of things, uh, Zach. It's like there's like this um, pathological competitiveness, efficiency hmm. uh, mentality, the worship of work. I mean, the, the clearest thing is that we somehow are one of literally two countries in the world that don't have paid family leave for uh, new moms. Right. Uh, you know, because that somehow would be like bad for business. Uh, I think acknowledging human vulnerability and struggles is also bad for business. Uh, like you're depressed, you know, keep it to yourself. Um, you know, that like, there's such like a, a worship of um, toughing it out or mm-hmm. uh, manning up, um, you know, at, at every aspect of American culture, really. Um, so I, I think the stigma is actually associated with um, our hyper capitalist institutions too. Yeah. like they're, they're, it's really pervasive. There's probably short-term and long-term solutions we can do um, from a policy standpoint. You have a bunch of ideas. Where would you start? There are so many things that we can do uh, to invest in our mental health. I mean, uh, we have to make sure that our existing resources stay open. Number one, we have to fund things like the crisis text line um, that right now are dependent upon philanthropy and volunteers. Uh, We just have to make sure that the resources that exist um, have what they need to, to meet the needs. Uh, we have many mental health centers that are getting uh, defunded right now um, and are closing. Um, so we need to fund them properly. We should be loosening any restrictions on psychologists or counselors or therapists or psychiatrists seeing people uh, over the Internet, where right now there are actually state by state licensing requirements, which really don't make a whole lot of sense. Because like, does the human mind change between Connecticut and uh, Vermont? And Vermont, <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, well, like I can't see a Vermonter's brain. Yeah, <laughs> like those Vermonters <laughs> are wired totally differently. Um, so we have to try and enable telepsychiatry uh, to a higher degree. Um, we should be loosening up um, the restrictions uh, for paraprofessionals who uh, might be able to help in a, a crisis who might not have had like, um, you know, the particular testing or credentialing or training. Um, but if you have someone who's being trained, who can then consult with someone um, who has years of experience um, that can help build capacity, we should make measuring our mental health 
one of like the key things we use to see how we're doing, where instead of paying attention to the stock market and GDP numbers, which are increasingly valueless, um, we should just see how our mental health is. And then we would know what is going on in our communities, which again is like a crisis that is deepening. Um, we should be training more and more therapists and counselors and psychologists and make it easier and cheaper. We should be hiring many of those people um, through the public um, because we need to create millions of jobs right now in this society. Um, we've lost 38 and a half million jobs officially. Um, unofficially, the damage is worse. The permanent uh, job loss is estimated to be 42% of the total. So 42% of 38 million is 15 to 16 million uh, and of permanent jobs lost. And uh, for reference, the Great Recession cost us 8.8 .8 million jobs. So you're looking at something that's almost two times the Great Recession permanently. And then another, let's call it 20 million jobs that may or may not come back. We hope they will. Uh, and so you need to be trying to find uh, employment opportunities for millions of Americans. And to me, hiring social workers, counselors, therapists, training psychologists, like th this can be uh, a nation scale initiative. We should be connecting mental health to physical health and say, look, they're the same freaking thing. If you see a doctor, um, there should just be a therapist down the hall. It'd be like, Hey, you want to see me too? They did this in Alaska and it had massive impact where really? it turns out physical health problems are tied to mental health problems a lot of the time. Right. You talk about getting mental health resources to cops too, or law enforcement officials. Talk about a stressful job. You know, like it, there were studies about how like many, many police officers are struggling with post-traumatic stress um, disorder because of some experience they had in the field. Um, so that that's a an area of investment that I feel like everyone could get behind. Because if you're a cop, you'd be like, sure, like, you know, like that'd be great. And if you're a member of the public, you'd be like, great, like, you know, happier, healthier cops. Um, so there are a lot of things that we should be doing Um bigger and better when it comes to mental health. But number one is recognizing that it's universal, we all struggle, um, and that we have a crisis that has been made much, much worse by this pandemic. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record, your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device, you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S vpn.com yang. Go to expressvpn.com yang to learn more. You wrote a whole book on job losses basically causing more mental health issues and, and, and creating this mental health crisis, right? Um, so you have this vicious cycle right now where we're losing more jobs. It's deteriorating our mental health. 
And then because of that, we're investing, we're able to invest less in mental health resources and people are getting worse. What, what are the social consequences that start happening if we as a country and we as families start deteriorating mentally, if, you know, for lack of a better term there, if we don't get this right, what does the future look like? Well, to me, the unit of an economy or a society is each person. Uh, and so if you look around and say, are we setting our kids up for success? Like, are we going to give rise to strong, healthy adults um, who then start families themselves uh, and can um, lead healthy, fulfilling lives for decades to come? Um, and so if you have a mental health crisis and an economic crisis and a public health crisis, like all stacked on top of each other, um, you're not giving individuals a chance to prosper and succeed. Uh, and then that degrades your educational outcomes, like your ability to uh, create jobs or perform at all economically to have a functioning democracy over time. To me, this stuff's not marginal. It's like, oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Like some, um, <laughs> yeah. some therapy would be great. Like, uh, it, like th this is fundamental where um, we have to make ourselves stronger as individuals to have uh, a strong society. So that's not a bad segue, Andrew, into, um, Something we're trying now, which is asking speaks. So if you use the hashtag asking speaks, we'll pull your questions and we'll try to use them um, weekly tied to the topic we're discussing and we're, we're highlighting on the show. So this is Mental Health Awareness Week. And this question is from Izzy Bolden on Twitter. Um, Izzy asks, can you go into detail as to why we have major stigmas for people with mental illnesses, which Yang, we kind of talked about. But Izzy asked specifically on learning and kind of um, invisible disabilities. So why do people in the society um, treat people with disabilities or things they don't understand inhumanely? Well, Izzy, um, I, I wish that we didn't stigmatize these issues. And, and one of the things I say as a parent of an autistic child is that uh, being neurologically uh, different is the new normal. Um, and I do genuinely think it's tied to the fact that we see everyone as like an economic uh, actor input. And then it's like, well, if you're not producing value in a particular way that we can all understand in the marketplace, then you're worthless. Uh, and it, it's all tied together. Like it's one reason why I'm so passionate about universal basic income is I think that making the statement that everyone is worth something intrinsically actually ends up uh, combating these sorts of stigmas uh, and make it seem like, well, it turns out the market does not tell us how much we're worth. I think that's one reason why uh, people who are neurologically different or have different issues or disabilities um, get marginalized the way they do here in, in the United States. I I will say this, um, and this is probably more touchy-feely than Andrew ever gets, but I'll, I'll say this. Like, look, for you, there's tens of thousands listening to this, listening to this episode every time. Whatever you're going through, whatever you're thinking, whatever anxiety to like negative thoughts you're having because of the pandemic you're not alone you we're all feeling it too um so i want you guys to know you're loved and it's gonna get better um and we're fighting for you and hopefully this podcast is a way for you to feel that you're heard and that other people are, are having these conversations too and we hope we hope this is a beacon for you in some way one person who's focused on uh, the health of our kids is my guest or our guest uh, this week, Dr. Gene Twangy, who is so uh, thoughtful uh, and profound in trying to figure out how we're going to make our kids stronger. If your family is anything like mine and you have kids right now, screen time has gone from something that you were like, oh, can't have too much to like, here it is. This is your day. So I am so pumped to talk to Gene Twangy, one of the foremost world leaders in studying what the heck happens to our kids when we get too much screen time. So if you're a parent, this thing is for you. And if you're not a parent and you're young and you're also on the screens all the freaking time because we're all stuck indoors, you should tune in too just to see what the heck is happening to your brain. Dr. Twangy wrote this book called iGen. And you, Andrew, when I first started, you gave me a couple books to read, and this was the one you were very passionate about. You have to read this. Yeah, Jean's tremendous. I am so excited that she came on to share some of her uh, learnings with us. I learned a ton from her, and I hope uh, everyone does. 
Now, one of the things that I ran on was the fact that we have a mental health crisis in this country, that there are record levels of depression, anxiety, uh, even suicide and self-harm. Uh, and one of the huge learnings from your book was that there was a surge in depression and anxiety among young people that's hand in hand with widespread smartphone adoption and the use of social media. There, there really is a mental health crisis, and I, I don't think that's an overstatement at at all. For adolescents, for young adults, we see these really striking increases in depression, in anxiety, uh, in unhappiness, um, loneliness. And those have been either unchanged or actually improving for a while. Then about 2011 or 2012, they start to rise in these very, very steep patterns. And it's not just survey data. It's not just people saying, you know, I, I, you know, I'm not happy. Um, you know, I, I feel useless or, or like I don't enjoy life. They're saying that, but it also shows up in behavior. So it's not just about self-reports. Emergency room admissions for self-harm behaviors have skyrocketed. Um, same thing, ER visits for thinking about suicide or attempting suicide for teenagers have gone way up. And most tragic of all, the actual suicide rate um, has doubled or even tripled um, for young people since 2010. So you look at all of that data, um, it's so consistent, the the changes are, are so large. The next question you have to try to answer is why, what happened? Um, that, that might explain, you know, why this is going on. And when I first started to see these trends, I had absolutely no idea what the cause could be. It was a real mystery. It was actually misaligned with economic trends because that period from 2011 to the, the latest data we have is 2018. That was a period of economic expansion. Things were doing, uh, things were going fairly well um, in, in the economy, at least in terms of unemployment and so on. Um, so it actually was misaligned with that. And it was hard to think of any other event that happened around that time. It kept going in the same direction, especially something that ha had a big effect on people's lives. But then one day I stumbled across a poll from the Pew Center for Research that showed the end of 2012 was the first time that the majority of Americans owned smartphones. And that's when I started to realize maybe that might have something to do with it, that as everyone adopted smartphones, as social media use among teens moved from optional to mandatory, that was happening at the same time. It wasn't just that it was happening at the same time. It was that that had a really big effect on teens' day-to-day -day lives. And it wasn't something that happened to their parents that they read about in the news. That shift in how they use their time outside of school was something that was happen happening to them every single day for hours at a time. They were spending a lot more time on their phones and social media and online and a lot less time with their friends face to face. And that's just not a good formula for mental health. We need that in-person social interaction to be healthy. Can you dig into why you became convinced uh, that smartphones and social media adoption was the strongest explanation? <laughs> Yeah, it, you know, it really was um, a process of thinking about what changed in the culture that had the biggest effect on people. Because if, if you think about big events, sometimes events are things that affect a small number of people quite a bit. But then for everyone else, it's something that they hear about or read about. There's other events like the coronavirus outbreak, for example. It's not just one localized event or something that is having an effect on a few people. It's something that is having an effect on almost everyone for weeks and months at a time. So it's like a big natural experiment. And the adoption of smartphones um, was also a big natural experiment of a totally different type, but it's something that had an effect on people's day-to-day -day lives. Generally, those are the things that are going to have the most impact on personal mental health and happiness. And 
the impact of smartphones was pretty striking. That if you look at teens and see, you know, how just how they're spending their time outside of school, it used to be that they would spend lots of time with their friends face to face. And now they spend a lot less time with their friends face to face and a lot more time communicating electronically. The other shift is that between 2012, 2018, teens were sleeping less, possibly because they were staying up late in their devices and that was interfering with sleep. So you put those things together of spending less time with friends in person, getting less sleep, that is going to have an impact on mental health. Even if we say, you know, screens aren't that bad, whatever, that displacement of things that are better for mental health might alone account for the the mental health issues. I I don't think they do. I think there's other things going on there in terms of what um, is going on online and some of the harmful information that some kids are getting online. But that's a big part of it. Not screens themselves, but what they replaced. On the other end, the technology companies, I like to quote my friend uh, Tristan Harris, who has said, we have some of the smartest engineers in our country turning supercomputers into dopamine delivery devices and slot machines for teenagers. Uh, And all of their economic incentives are around maximizing engagement for advertising revenue. And so where is the mental health consideration in the design of these apps or technologies completely absent. Like if you're uh, Facebook, you know, you just start trying to gin up ad revenue in any way you can and anything you do that's going to end up maximizing engagement, uh, you're going to gravitate towards. And so, like you said, this is a giant natural experiment. If you think about what would be the counterweight for the designers and the investment on the technology side, it would theoretically be someone in the room being like, hey, maybe you should dial that back a notch. Or maybe like after someone's been using uh, the app or the phone for more than 20 hours that week, like you might want (laughs) to like have like have some kind of notification or something along those lines. Like there's that is not happening in large part because our government is decades behind the curve when it comes to any of these issues. Uh, We got rid of the Office of Technology Assessment uh, literally over 20 years ago. Um, And so there's no one even advising Congress on technology-related issues aside from the technology companies themselves. And that that's the problem. I mean, it's it's really, um, you know, unregulated. And I mean, I think the, the, the good news is say, you know, if you're making smartphones, say Apple, for example, they've introduced this program called Screen Time that actually will give you a little bit of a heads up of, hey, here's what happened. You know, on Sunday, it sends you this notification of your screen time was up, your screen time is down, and here much, here's how much it was. Um, but that makes sense. Their business model is going to be you buy the phone, you're good. Social media companies, for example, you're exactly right. They make more money the more time people spend on this. So if there's a 13-year-old who's spending 10 hours a day on Instagram, that's one of their best customers. That's what they want. That's how you make the most money. Um, and I love Tristan Harris's work. Um, he, His philosophy, these are just a wonderful way to sum it up, is time well spent. And that's what we have to do. Not give up technology. Technology is great. It's just that we shouldn't be spending all of our waking hours on it, that there has to be some limit. We have to think more mindfully about how we're spending our time. And that's the key because you think about social media and it's, it's quote free, right? But what are we, what are we actually paying with? We're paying with our time. We're paying with our attention. And I think it's increasingly uh, obvious that we're paying with our mental health and the mental health of our children. So, you know, these these are not small issues. These, this is a this is a big deal. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep 
lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Let's imagine, Gene, for a moment. Um, I'm the president of the United States, and I'm just going to do whatever you tell me is the right thing to do. Uh, so what would you tell us to do? Uh, so there's a couple things. Um, one is... Now, I'm not I'm not a lawyer. However, my understanding of the 98 law is that people under the age of 13 are not allowed to have a social media account in their own name. Yet it's never enforced. And there are lots of 12, 11, 10, even nine, seven, eight year old kids who have social media accounts and they just they just put a different birthday in. And they're good. And then they have a social media account. Um, sometimes their parents don't even know about it because the average age to get your first smartphone is now 10. So they have their own device. If that device hasn't been you know, set up with parental controls by their parents, which usually they're not, then they go and get a social media account and they're good. So start by enforcing existing law on that. Number two would be to consider doing what France has done and saying no smartphones during the school day at school. So when kids are at school, then that phone is put in a locker or someplace safe and they get it back at the end of the day. So bell to bell, no phones. And that accomplishes two things. First, there's not as many distractions in the classroom. You talk to any high school teacher, they'll tell you it's like a constant battle um, trying to get kids to put those phones away. And then second, then they'll actually talk to each other at lunch. Because you know what middle and high schools are like now when you go into the lunchroom? They're shockingly quiet because the kids are all on their phones. They're not talking to each other. That, that is very depressing and I'm sure accurate and quite dystopian. It, it is. And I mean, that that's the other thing that a lot of people are concerned about is that where are kids going to get developed social skills? And that's what they really need. So you, Snap, come on. They'll be on Snapchat. They'll, right. Uh, they'll, you know... Like uh, they'll, they'll learn very many important social lessons uh, via TikTok. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, may, maybe they will, but I, 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 I shouldn't. I shouldn't laugh. I was joking on the trail. It's yeah. like TikTok when Instagram is too intellectual. <laughs> right, that's a good one. I like that exactly. Uh, I want to return to these policy recommendations because both of them are slam dunks. I mean, obviously, if you have a law in the books, um, you should have some kind of real, uh, uh, and I don't want to say enforcement, but like accountability. Um, and bell to bell, no smartphone just seems common sense to me. I was a very shy, nerdy, introverted kid. Um, but when I was 12 years old and I went home and I shut the door, I was alone. Uh, today, that 12-year-old kid shuts the door and then everyone in their schools in the room with them because they could just turn on their phone and just see what everyone's up to, see what everyone's saying and thinking and presenting. And I cannot imagine what that would be like, because for me, like if I had a tough day at school and a lot of them were tough days and I closed my door, then that was it. Like no one's like following me home. You know what I mean? Whereas today, like I feel like those kids getting followed home, that to me seems very, very difficult. Like it, it would fundamentally change uh, your sense of uh, privacy, solitude. Uh, you know, it, it's especially when you're young, because we all remember when you're kids, like what other kids 
are saying and thinking about you seems like the entire world. I, absolutely. And, you know, when you're a teenager, that that is kind of the time when people develop social skills and relationship skills and friendships and communication skills and all those things are really, really coming together at that time. And the norm is just completely shifted. I mean, there's just an enormous drop in kids just hanging out with each other. So there's one of these big surveys that I analyze has this question, um, you know, how often do you get together with your friends informally? So just, you know, that's that's a great question. It's very broad. It's something that you know, most parents would approve of. It's you know, not something illicit. You know, how often do you do that? And back in the 80s, when it was Gen Xers who were doing it, about 50% of teens said, yeah, I do that every day. And now it's about 25. So it's been cut in half. And across the board, whether it's, you know, going to out to movies, to parties, walking around the mall, all those things that used to be the daily life of teens, iGen scenes just don't do them as much, you know, every once in a while, but it's much more rare. So that interaction and communication has moved online. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, well, don't you think in the future, you know, all the communication is going to be completely online anyway? Well, maybe, maybe some of it, but especially once we're all out of, out of our houses, um, social skills, never going to go away. That true human connection, that is something that can't be automated. It's something that's always going to be important. And it's something a lot of kids are missing out on. And they were missing out on it even before the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, so you are on your second recommendation, which was uh, no cell phones and no smartphones in schools, which makes perfect sense to me. Um, are, are there more things you'd like to tell our, our hypothetical president? <laughs> you could explore instead of it being 13 to have a social media account maybe it should be 16 so that would be another thing to consider for kids to just be a little bit more mature beyond that it's going to be more a matter of how can we educate both kids and their parents about basically you know digital hygiene there's a lot of talk in schools about digital citizenship, which I, I get, but I think it ignores some of the basics around, well, there's a time to be on technology, and then there are times when we should not be on technology. So we were talking about sleep earlier. That has to be number one. When I, when I give talks to high school parents and high school and middle school students themselves, I always tell them, if you want to just take one thing away from this talk, it should be this. We shouldn't have our phones or tablets in our bedrooms overnight. And if you want to regulate that as a parent, go into the parental controls and have that phone or tablet or laptop become a brick at bedtime. Just have it. It doesn't work anymore. So that's what we do in, in, in our house with my 13-year-old. She doesn't have a phone, but she has a laptop and it just doesn't work. It doesn't work after nine o'clock. Um, and, and then, you know, if you're not tech savvy and you don't want to go in and mess with that, I get it. Then you just physically take it, put it on a charger downstairs or away from the bedrooms. Or, you know, if that even that doesn't work, buy a lockbox, put it in there, lock it up at night. Just we shouldn't be having these in our phone in, in the bedroom overnight. And that goes for adults too, by the way. Um, we really need to have our sleep, preserve our sleep. And then if you're wondering, this is the question I usually get at this point. Well, wait, I have to have my phone in my bedroom overnight because it's my alarm clock. I have some advice for you. Buy an alarm clock. You can buy it on Amazon on your phone and then put your phone away and get a good night's sleep. I completely agree, by the way, like that of trying to get your smartphones and devices out of your room. Um, Ariana, my friend Ariana Huffington uh, recommended that a little while ago. And I was like, Ooh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, more, more concrete lessons for parents like, like me. Uh, um, do you do anything else with your three girls? Yeah. So the, the other thing is um, you don't want to be on an electronic device right before bedtime. So um, there's this enormous body of research on this from sleep researchers that 
And they do this in sleep labs as well as at people's homes. So there's you know all kinds of different methods and all converges on this that you shouldn't be on a device within about an hour of bedtime, if at all possible. That's for two really big reasons. First, pretty much everything we do on phones and tablets is psychologically stimulating. You know, social media, texting, shopping, whatever it is, it gets our brains going at a time when we need to be relaxing before bed. There's a physiological element to it as well, that the blue light from these devices shines into our eyes, tricks our brains into thinking it's still daytime, and then we don't produce the melatonin, the sleep hormone that we need to have to fall asleep quickly and get a good night's sleep. Um, so then the question people has, have is, well, then what do I do before I go to bed? Well, you know, people have going, been going to sleep for centuries without scrolling through Instagram. So it is possible. Um, and you just have to think about what to replace it with. So reading, you can read a, a book um, or- I recommend iGen yeah. by Gene Twang. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you. But you can you can read anything you like. Um, and if and if you use a Kindle, that's fine. Because it say a Kindle paperweight, you just turn the light all the way off. You read an iPad or if you watch TV, those have blue light. They don't, they don't have the psychological stimulation. So you're good more or less good there, but um, you can wear orange safety glasses to filter out the blue light. So that's actually what, what we do um, in, in our house. Our, our rule is you either read or watch TV before you go to bed. So uh, no other devices, but if you're going to watch TV before you go to bed, then uh, you wear these $10 um, orange safety glasses to filter out the blue light. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. You are, you know, like a PhD, a professor, one of like the foremost authorities on this. And like the fact that you're taking countermeasures with your girls um, is tremendous. But most Americans are in a position where they're just, you know, just trying to get through a day. They might be working two jobs like their kids are left on their own for, you know, most of the time. In our current era of pervasive financial insecurity, where if you're a parent, like you're just trying to like, you know, keep a roof over the head and then what the kids are doing, um, it's it's pretty much like a free for all, you know, like imagining that we're going to be able to figure out everything our kids are doing at any moment in time um, uh, strikes me as frankly ridiculous. Uh, and so then you go back to the source of it and you have these tech companies, again, in some cases, trillion dollar companies minting um like billions of dollars. Uh, and so that's one end of the equation. And then the other end is that 13 year old girl in Albuquerque, New Mexico, like getting depressed. Um, uh, and so instead of saying like, Hey, that girl's parent should really get in there and figure out what the heck the, the daughter's doing uh, or like lying about her age or whatever it happens to be. Like, I think that's stupid. Uh, I, I think we should go straight to the tech companies and say, hey, guys, check it out. Like your interest is making lots of money. Our interest is not screwing up our kids wholesale and like wrecking generations and making it so that like our kids are, you know, heading to emergency rooms and like are anxious and depressed. Even if they're fortunate enough to be at the upper end of the educational spectrum, they show up to college, they're super depressed. So you're going to have to dial it back. You know, it's like you, you you should not just have a higher age for social media accounts, but maybe there should be like sort of like a hygiene limit on how much they can like snap every day. It's like and you can set the limit at something like reasonably high, um, but not 10 hours a day high. Like, <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? 
and I would put our friend Tristan Harris in charge of it. Incidentally, I think his name is pronounced Tristan, even though it's spelled Tristan. So whatever. I mean, obviously, I'm sure he gets that all the time. But um, so I'd put our friend Tristan in charge of it um, and say, hey, time well spent. Like that is actually uh, what should be happening uh, in our society. And I believe that some of the tech companies are increasingly open to this because a lot of them um, have kids now, or like the founders have kids. Uh, and one of the things I said when I was on the campaign trail is that if you want to go to a place where they police screen time very, very rigorously, go to Silicon Valley because those parents know what is going on in these apps and, and technologies and they don't let their kids use it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so think about what that says. Um, so I, I just want to say, like, uh, your wish list is 100% correct, but we're going to have to go much, much bigger if we're actually going to get into the root of this problem, uh, because government right now is decades behind the curve. Parents are outgunned. This is a role for us to to actually try and say, look, like, we have to make real decisions as to what is best for our kids and I'm very, very sure that what's best for our kids is not let the tech companies um, just figure it out on their own. I mean, there, there has to be something where, at least for minors, so se- you know, ages 17 and under, that there can be more regulation of this. Just like um, people were eventually successful in getting more regulation around children's television, that we could have more regulation, you know, around social media. Um, And, you know, we have to be thoughtful about it because, you know, there's 15 year olds out there who are, you know, starting their own business and maybe they need to be on Instagram for that. So we have to, you know, kind of recognize that, but there's, there are reasonable limits and we can think about, you know, certain platforms. I think, you know, Snapchat's a great example. It is arguably, um, you know, not as bad as say Instagram, because, you know, on Instagram, there's too many teenage girls who are taking, you know, 250 selfies to get the right one. And there's so much body image emphasis and so on. It, you know, might be part of the reason why we have so much depression and those trends are stronger among girls. But then we get Snapchat where, you know, nobody's using that for work. Who are we kidding? Um, And there are kids who are, yeah, on it eight, 10 hours a day. So we have to think about like reasonable limits. There's lots of things that you can do with technology and lots of things you can do online that are very productive, that are very positive. And then there's things that aren't. Um, and that's what makes it so hard, I think, to to regulate it is, um, I mean, let's take, you know, two, take two people who both, you look at their, their screen time report on their smartphone, says they spend eight hours a day online. Well, one of them is a pizza delivery person and seven hours of that is on the maps function. Well, they're probably fine. But then, you know, the other is a 12-year-old girl who, you know, lied about her birthday and has spent seven out of those eight hours on Instagram. That's a different situation. So that's going to be, I think, the, the huge challenge in trying to regulate stuff is it has to be more specific. And, you know, parents can do that now, but you're right. It shouldn't just be on parents. It, that really is the big lie of like, oh, parents can do can do everything. Well, we're stretched in and there's only so much that we can do. So you're right. We need help. And I think what's really interesting is you have all this stuff that all this fascinating data on kids. And now we're in quarantine. So it's, it's hitting the kids probably double, but it's also hitting the adults, too, because we're on our screens all day long, too. What? I, uh, let's just start with this. Thoughts on coronavirus and quarantine right now and how your research is applying to the crisis we're in today. So it's not all bad. You know, we're getting probably more, you know, face-to-face time with our, with our families. And so for younger kids, they miss their friends, but they're getting by because they're like, hey, mom and dad are around more. But with teens, that's where it becomes really, really hard because just as we were talking about how much, you know, college was, let's get out of here. Um, that starts 12 or 13 when they want to have their own lives and their own social life with their friends. And that's gone. I mean, in terms of in person, that is gone right now. It is not happening. So they rely on electronic communication. And, you know, I suppose you can see that as an upside. Then they know how to do that. 
But the fundamental psychology of humans has not changed. It is not the same to communicate with your friends on Instagram as it is to be with them in person. And if you look at the trends that caused the mental health crisis that we were in even before this started, they were less face-to-face -face interaction, more electronic communication. Now we're at a next level for that. So that's what has me really concerned is that for everybody, we are not spending as much time with people face-to-face -face, um, or in, in person. So we have to think about in this situation, what can we do to try to replace that? And I think the answer most of the time is going to be video chat. So Skype or FaceTime or Zoom, where you are interacting in real time, you can see the other person's face. And it's still not the same as being able to be in the same room with someone, but it's the closest we can get. And so with our kids, we can encourage them in that direction of instead of, you know, spending even more time on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok, that let's communicate with our friends by doing a video call. And iGen's a little allergic to that. The idea of like calling somebody is kind of foreign to them, even when it comes to video chat and, and, and video calls, whether it's teens or, or adults, you know, you can, you can send that text and say, Hey, you know, sometime this evening, let's, let's do FaceTime. Um, and it's, it's, it's a best substitute right now. I've got two uh, young boys, seven and four. One of them is autistic. And one of the things that gave me joy was dropping off. Uh, both of them to school because both of them struggle with social skills. And so just what it took for them to traffic getting through a school day with, you know, like 25 other seven-year-olds or four-year-olds, like I knew that was really exactly what they needed. Uh, and they're not getting that now. You know, it's like they, they have some online uh, sessions uh, that are better than nothing, but are certainly not the same we have to try to find the positive in this situation and potentially, especially for kids, maybe a little bit older than, than yours, but you know, my, my kids ages where they're, um, you know, from eight to 13, this is the opportunity of a lifetime to get good and bored and to figure out what to do when you're bored and you want to try to find something you're interested in to explore. Uh, I just want to dig into like the, the big picture uh, path forward. So here's, here's what seems to me to be very, very evident. We're going to have this massive project in my mind of trying to help uh, our entire country recover from this collective trauma that we're experiencing right now. That's certainly most devastating for uh, people who are more vulnerable in various ways. Um, and so I would love your thoughts on what uh, national rebuilding of mental health might look like. Well, I mean, there's always the, I mean, the most obvious, which still just never happens, is more resources for mental health professionals because those offices are overwhelmed even before this all happened. So we're going to need that. I want to mention one other thing, which I, I don't know exactly how this would be regulated or the policy solution, but something I think it's really important for uh, parents and, and policymakers to know is I, I think a good amount of that increase in those ER visits for self-harm and suicide attempts happened because there are websites that will tell people how to harm themselves. Um, there's also websites that will tell kids um, how to starve themselves. So they're called pro-ana websites like pro-anorexia. And then there's all of these that will actually tell kids how to, har how to harm themselves. Um, and that, you know, you talk about all of these other influences, that could be a good amount of why we have such a huge increase in self-harm and suicide attempts as well is that that information is out there and it used to be 
that a kid would have to go to the computer in the family room to look at it. And the parent would be like, hey, what is that? Now with the smartphone, they're looking at it by themselves in their own room, starting sometimes at the age of 10 or younger. We're all struggling and then we're, we're all struggling alone. Um, and, you know, we need to come together and be like, hey, if it's everyone's struggling and our kids are struggling, uh, then maybe we should do something about it. Like, like this is the, the foundation of my campaign and why I'm so like passionate and angry about this, uh, where uh, we're just maximizing capital returns and saying, well, I guess that's the purpose of our society while our kids are getting sick and anxious and depressed. Uh, and, and like, what's the point? <laughs> like, what, what, like, what's the point of high GDP if you're all miserable and anxious and, and even suicidal? Like, you know, it's like, what, what kind of, what kind of society we organize ourselves around? Um, so to me, if you're not getting it right for your kids, you're just getting it wrong. <laughs> 